In February of 1916, along the west bank of the Meuse, a hell unlike any ever known to man descended upon the French fortress of Verdun. Over 1,000 German heavy guns fired a combined 1 million shells in just the first nine hours. A French officer who survived the bombardment wrote, For every five defenders, two are buried alive, two are wounded, and one is waiting. The Germans had just begun their latest offensive and the largest battle ever fought by mankind to that point. Above this churning hell, the air war of World War I ignited as both sides committed to stopping the other from observing the huge movements of men, supplies, and guns needed to feed the fire. In this comparatively minuscule but no less important battle for the air, one man above the rest was feared and respected. The mentor to the Red Baron, the father of the German Air Force, and to some the father of all air combat, Oswald Bulka fought against a rising tide of Allied planes to bring victory to the German army. I'm Brass. And I'm Mr. Chow. And we're just your run-of-the-mill average fighter pilots. So luckily, this podcast isn't about us. It's about the extraordinary fighter pilots who've come before us. Welcome to Fight History. Welcome back to Fight History. How are you doing this morning, Mr. Chow? I'm uh, doing well. I mean, I, actually, my throat's a little bit sore and I'm drinking tea right now. But yes, other than that, doing Yeah, great. there is a bug going around. I've got the same thing, so hopefully it won't affect the podcast too much. And uh, one thing I realized while I listened back to our uh, last episode is that we both mentioned we've been doing this cold weather thing in the morning. I think maybe we should probably expand upon that because it sounds like we're both insane. But the truth is we're both just partially insane. So um, I was looking for a new morning routine. Everyone talks about these cold showers in the morning. I happen to live, I said I have my lake. I live on like a little pond with a lot of other houses on that pond. It's definitely not my lake. Uh, and so I started jumping in the lake every morning. And I, it's pretty cold. It's New England. It's November. Um, so it's cold, but I feel like, man, I am just ready to freaking run through a wall after I do that first thing in the morning. And then I've convinced you to start taking the showers, the cold showers. So how's that going? Yeah, I, I listened to a, uh, I think it was a Huberman episode where he talks about how uh, levels of dopamine are affected by different things that we do. Uh, newsflash, scrolling on social media, it's not, not super good for your overall. Uh, yeah, that's not your best morning routine. Dope Dopamine levels. And uh, one of the things that he talks about ways to increase your average dopamine levels is by taking a cold shower every morning. Uh, so Brass had kind of been... He'd been doing this and convincing me that it was a good routine. I didn't really believe him, but then once somebody else told me that it was valuable, then I, I considered it. I don't have a lake by my house, uh, but I do have a shower that is cold, uh, and so I've been doing that every morning. Yeah, and I've actually tried the cold shower thing. I think it's actually harder than jumping in a lake because, I don't know, the water's like sheeting off of you, and I feel that it feels colder than actually getting into a really cold lake. Um, but I think I my cold shower days and actually not my cold shower my cold lake days are coming to an end because now it's november and now it's really freaking cold it's like 35 degrees outside and the water's very cold so we'll see how long it can do that but i think we should also talk about it's not just for me at least a dopamine thing it sort of fits into a whole philosophy of try not to just be too comfortable all the time you got to embrace a little bit of discomfort if you can do it right in the morning then i feel like i'm a little bit more productive in the day you know 
Yeah, I think that the the discomfort is important because it creates, uh, you know, a larger sine wave of comfort to discomfort in your life. Uh, and so you get that low first thing in the morning and now you're motivated to get yourself out of that. Exactly. And there's a good uh, quote you sent me the other day about not necessarily comfort, but leisure, which is a life oriented to leisure is in the end a life oriented to death, the greatest leisure of all. So that's kind of a, a good one I'll keep in my back pocket. I like that. Yeah, and that's from the uh, the introduction of the book Bird by Bird, Some Instructions on Writing and Life by Anne Lamott, which uh, I'm about halfway through right now. And if you're interested in writing or in life in general, uh, I'd recommend it. It's a good read. Yeah. Um, and I think one person that would um, embrace this uh, embracing of discomfort, if you will, is our friend Oswald Bolka. We'll get back to Bolka here. I've been very excited to do this episode. When we started the podcast, actually, I had Bolka in mind as potentially the first guy we would do because his contributions to... So to speak. Yeah, so to speak. Um, his contributions to air combat are so great and so fundamental, uh, which we'll get into later. And I think, you know, when I've learned more about him here, uh, he would be very much in line with the cold shower routine. He, uh, he writes at one point that, you know, military training just takes the lazy flesh off of him. So he was definitely not looking for a life of comfort. But that being said, he was born more or less into a life of comfort, uh, born fourth of uh, six kids in Germany in 1891. His dad was a school teacher and had just come back from Buenos Aires, actually, where he was teaching school there. Uh, but he got back to the, the Fazerland uh, before Bolka was born. So he was the first of the children born back in Germany. And basically, when everyone writes about him as a child, there's a couple things that stand out. One, he was a natural born leader. He was a leader from day one. And the second thing is he was a great athlete, specifically in swimming. And something that's kind of cool is he wasn't allowed to um, compete in some of the public meets because he went to this private school. And I guess there was a, a rule against that. But he actually went, he competes under a false name and he wins all these ribbons at this meet he's not even supposed to be at, which is one other thing we'll see about Bolka is that he has, I think, a healthy disdain for rules. You got to know which rules are important, which ones aren't. And this is not the only time that we'll see him kind of step over the line to kind of get whatever he's aiming for. Yeah, and I think it's it's a disdain for rules in the spirit of resourcefulness, right? He's trying to find a way to accomplish what his mission is at that time, and his mission is to compete in these swim meets, and he's figuring out a way to do it. Uh, and I think that's something, that's a, that's a theme that carries over to a lot of the fighter pilots that we are looking at. Exactly. As we kind of talked about in the last episode of Immelman being maybe you're not standard fighter pilot. In a lot of ways, Bolka is the foil of that in being the standard fighter pilot. He kind of doesn't take no for an answer. He is very smart, but uh, his headmaster at school says his inclinations did not tend to book learning because he had too strong an inclination to active work. So he's always outside. He's an athlete. He's a leader. Um, and like I said, he has that sort of, t I won't take no for an answer. I'm going to maybe bend some rules to make, you know, to actually achieve the object of my aims. And one of the greatest examples of that is he wanted to go to a military academy 
and not just any military academy. He wanted to go to one in Koblenz, which was a, a better military academy at the time. And he actually writes Kaiser Wilhelm himself to try and get admitted to that academy. So he writes a letter to the emperor as a kid, and it works. So he gets admitted to this military academy after like literally convincing Kaiser Wilhelm himself which is incredible. I want to know what he put in that letter. It must have been pretty convincing to get the emperor to read it and accept him. Once Bolka does get admitted to the academy, he starts his initial military training. And then uh, we start getting these letters uh, that we, we can start looking at these letters that he's writing home to his parents. So like Immelman, we're getting a lot of this story from Bolka from his own words, which is nice. So we can kind of get a sense of who he is as an individual, not just uh, from this third person point of view. And uh, when he joins, he's initially joining for the telegraph technical training, and he's joining a telegraph unit, which sounds pretty old school, and it was, but it was still pretty new technology, especially as they went to wireless telegraphs at this time. So he's kind of like cutting edge technology, even though it sounds very old. It's not science fiction. It's what we do every day. It's not science fiction. I get locked out of my computer every day. Um, And when he was a kid, actually, Bolka, again, he was interested in machines. And he actually set up a telegraph line when he was like 10 years old from his house to his best friend's house. So this is right in his wheelhouse as he joins his initial military training. Um, and initially it's just, he writes about basically being in basic training. They're just running them through the mill. That's when he writes about, they're just taking the lazy flesh off of us. Um, and he's trying to stay in shape. So he just has the light beer with lunch. And when we talked about Immelman be, maybe being a little bit out of the ordinary as a teetotaler in Germany, like they're serving beer with lunch in your basic training, uh, back in the day. Um, but he writes about how it gets a little bit easier when they're given their own Batman. So this is something I think we need to bring back immediately into the modern militaries. But if you were an officer, you basically got assigned a butler uh, as soon as you finish your basic training. So he gets. We need to talk to our crew chiefs about this. We need to talk to our crew chiefs. I need someone, uh, you know, uh, polishing up my boots or whatever they used to do back then. Really, I just need him taking, driving to my house and like cleaning my house. That's what I need uh, help with right now with a one-year-old kid. Uh, But anyways, he's given a Batman. He says life gets a lot easier uh, at that point in time. And part of his training that's kind of interesting to me is they basically send him right out into the field uh, to practice putting up these telegraph wires. And he's got a whole group of people that he's in charge of immediately after his initial training because he is going to be an officer. And he's given free reign to do almost whatever he wants. So he's being builded on the local population, which is against the Constitution of the United States. Thank you, America. Uh, but he's basically just put up with peasants and stuff. They have to kind of put up with him. He's figuring out how to put up these telegraph wires. And sometimes he's commandeering stables. He is doing whatever is required to get the job done. Uh, and I think it's a little bit of his formulation of his leadership style. And his like, you know, we we've mentioned he doesn't take no for an answer. He's going to get the job done type of mentality. Um, not to say that he's a jerk. He's just a guy who's a good problem solver. I would put it that way is what I get out of his letters. Like it wouldn't come up to, or be the most natural thing to most people these days to say, I'm commandeering these stables so I can make this telegraph, you know, line work. But he goes ahead and does that. And he obviously doesn't, uh, he doesn't know for sure that world war one is coming at this time, but I can tell you that going into world war one, I think there was almost no job I would rather not have than 
stringing telegraph wire. Yeah, that's not a good. That sounds absolutely terrible. I mean, yeah, we talked about we've a lot. Obviously, we've talked a lot about the observation planes and and the importance of that. And nested in all that was all the communication required to make that happen, right? And so you had to have telegraph wire around the front, so all the higher command could communicate the orders to the front lines. And so that would have been his job if he stayed a telegraph officer into World War One. And obviously those guys were of high importance to take out so you can take out the enemy's communications. So yeah, not a good job to have um, in World War One. And one thing that other thing that's kind of interesting is when he's taking all these military classes, he eventually transferred to Metz. Metz is a city in Alsace-Lorraine. So he's actually in modern day France when he's going through this because Alsace-Lorraine has now been, you know, given back to the French. So kind of funny, he's in this somewhat French city while he's doing all of this, but still in Germany. And at one point during all his military training, he starts to see airplanes start flying. And he writes that one monoplane makes particularly fine flights. I never get tired of watching and always stare at them with eyes of longing. It must be a wonderful sport. So he starts getting bitten by the bug like everybody else as he starts seeing airplanes fly at the military academy. Um, and he is given grades at military academy. I do think it's important to say here that he scores a perfect score in leadership. So when people say, oh, he's a natural born leader, it's not just blowing sunshine up his ass. Like by all accounts, he was a natural born leader and people tend to gravitate toward him, which is interesting because at the beginning of the book, they actually say that he has a homeliness peculiar to Brandenburg. So he's not necessarily like the most attractive guy in the world, but they say he has eyes of a man who is absolutely fearless. So he's got these like bright blue eyes. I'm looking at him kind of across right now. Mr. Chow has to get the whites all the way around his eyes. I'm not sure that's what kind of eyes they were talking about, but he is sort of a striking figure, uh, even if it's not in the most conventional way. Um, and Another sort of thing that caught my eye while I was reading is he writes about being at school and seeing the Prussians and the Bavarians and the Saxons. And it's it's interesting that the Germans even today have a have very unique cultural uh, regions and almost like in you know in the US you have you know the north and the south, east west kind of dynamics that there's a, a very specific dynamic like that in Germany. Germany wasn't a country until 1871. Before that, you had kingdoms of Prussia and you had kingdoms of Saxony and Bavaria, etc. And they were unified in the Franco-Prussian War under Bismarck. That's like one of Bismarck's big claims to fame. And so uh, he is actually saying like, oh, there are the Saxons, there are the Bavarians, there are you know the Prussians. And... Uh, we talked a little bit about um, how Germany led the Second Industrial Revolution, how they came together um, after that Franco-Prussian War. And I think it's important for people to realize that Germany unifying was one of the main catalysts of World War I because everyone kind of got afraid of all these independent states that then came together and how had a huge population. They were unified under one Kaiser, right, which is just Caesar, in German. And we talked about how they were kind of seen as these barbarian tribes and that had always been somewhat balkanized and separated, but now they were one unified force. And the rest of Europe kind of took a 
stepped back and went, this is now a, a serious problem, right? Um, and while there's uh, the French and I think the rest of the propaganda machines kind of oversold these barbarians who are at the gates, there is some truth to that. Prussia specifically, which was a kingdom in northern Germany, was quite militaristic. They are the Sparta to the Athens of Paris to a certain extent. Napoleon has this great quote that Prussia was hatched by a cannonball, and that's kind of what you need to know about their culture. It's very Spartan. It's very militaristic. And they were definitely you know, somewhat itching for war when it finally did come around. They were not, you know, necessarily on the receiving end of this thing, although it was a series of alliances that really pulled them into it. But um, before we get there, Oswald Bolka does have a couple years just as a life as of an officer, right? Between 1912 and about 1914. And it, this reads like something my wife would want to watch on Netflix. It's like, you know... He's just going to dances every other weekend. He's having a banquet in the mess. He's hanging out with a government official. So this is sort of a golden couple of years for him. This is his um, schedule for one week. He wrote to his parents. Monday is banquet in the mess. Tuesday evening, invitation from my captain. Wednesday is the dancing class's Christmas party. Today is dinner and dance at the house of a government official. Tomorrow, meeting of the reading circle. And then Saturday, an excursion of the dancing class. And that... Bolka wrote home uh, December 5th, 1912. So that's kind of his life uh, leading into World War I. It's, it's hard not to draw parallels between that and uh, specifically when we were talking about Roland Garros and his life in France leading up to World War I. Uh, he was, if you remember in that episode, we talked about how he owned his own sports car dealership and he is this playboy in Paris uh, driving a sports car around. And it's... It's interesting to see that the same thing is happening in Germany. It's also this kind of golden age there, and yet the Belle Epoch, right? Yeah, and yet war is brewing. Yeah, it's definitely the calm before the storm in nineteen ten to nineteen fourteen or so in Europe. And it's kind of funny; they all knew war was coming. If you read about it, they all were like, "Yeah, it's going to come around the corner," but no one was really all that worried about it because they didn't understand what it would look like. They didn't understand it was going to be World War One. They thought it would be a small little conflict to break the tension and then keep going. I, I think it's hard when, especially when you have new technology that hasn't really been used in mass in war. Uh, and I'm not even really talking about the airplane here. I'm more talking about artillery and chemical weapons. Yeah. And it's also and the machine, machine guns. guns. Yeah, yeah, machine guns in particular. Um, and, you know, having never seen true trench warfare, like what is about to happen... I think it's probably hard for everyone to conceptualize that. It is. And you have to think all these great European powers, England, France, Germany, they all have these colonies that they've been, and they've had these little engagements and conflicts in the colonies. And they're, they're usually fighting people who are a thousand years behind them in terms of technological innovation. Yeah, these are the splendid little wars that America ha is having <laughs> uh, leading up to World War One, right? Yeah, I mean, everyone's having these little wars. And actually, the term Huns comes from a little war that the Germans fought. And Kaiser Wilhelm encouraged his troops to fight like the Huns in a speech. And then the the French and American and British propaganda took that and then started calling the Germans the Huns because of it. Uh, but 
they're basically slaughtering people in these wars. It's almost not even fair to call them wars because you're fighting tribesmen with machine guns. And so they all have this false sense of confidence. And they don't really understand that when you go up against someone else, else with a machine gun, it almost comes to a standstill unless you have a way to get through that curtain of fire. And machine gun is such a perfect word from a, an onomatopoeia sense and from just a very visual sense. It is mass-produced death to a certain extent. It is a machine. Do you know what I mean? And they just don't really understand that at the beginning of the war. Um, and as we move towards that war, uh, Bolka has a very interesting timeline. Uh, so in 19 May 1914, uh, he writes home to his parents that he's going on a secret telegraph mission to Halberstadt, where he and he's going to set up a wireless telegraph thing there. And what's cool is you read that letter in the book, and the book is uh, The Night of Germany. Uh, and the author takes this moment to say, this might be the first time he lied to his parents. So he's telling you, we talked about the um, unreliable, narrator. unreliable narrator in the last episode. He's an unreliable narrator there. He's lying to his parents. He was afraid to tell them that he was going to pilot training because it was so dangerous. And he's, his brother was already an observer. Uh, in the German Air Force and his brother said ah just tell him you're doing this and then once you have your pilot's license then you'll tell him that you're you know uh, an actual pilot and it won't be as bad then because you've already gone through your training and so while he's telling his parents he's going the secret mission he actually starts flying and this is just a couple months before the war starts and so here's the timeline to June 1914 he begins flying the 70 horsepower Bristol Taub and this is a very underpowered little trainer on hot days it can only get like 5 to 10 meters off the ground on 28 June, that's when Archduke Franz Ferdinand is assassinated. On 3 July, Volka has his first crash when his engine cuts out and he has to land in a cornfield. He's fine. On 31 July, he passes his second wave of tests. And this is the same day Kaiser Wilhelm declares the sword is being forced in our hands. And then Germany mobilizes for war the next day. So like he finishes pilot training and then the war starts almost immediately. And so, like everyone else at the time, Bolka is kind of swat, uh, or caught up in this August madness, right? He really wants to get to the front. But because he's so new, they send him kind of back, uh, not at the front, and he's supposed to do a few cross-country flights and do all, like a couple top-offs to his pilot training. And this is when we get to see the Bolka who doesn't always um, necessarily like to follow all the rules. He even writes, one must not be too quiet and law-abiding but take a risk sometimes to achieve one's object. So he finds out his brother's on the front lines, and they're flying these Albatross 2C observation planes, and he has access to some of them behind the lines, and he knows that they're looking for more up at the front. So he just basically hops in one for like a quote-unquote training sortie, flies to the front, makes another quote-unquote forced landing, happens to be at his brother's airfield, and then they're just like, yeah, you're staying up here now. So that's how he gets to fly on the front lines. Um, and so by September, just a month into the war, Volka's flying on the front lines, and he flies exclusively with his brother as the observer. It, let's let's take a look at that timeline too. I mean, June he's starting training, um, and then September he's flying on the front lines and going into combat. So just to compare that to like modern day pilot training, I mean, I think we had. Probably what a month of academics, I say, maybe another even month be. of sims. You might, you might, be, you might have had your first ride in an airplane 
and you still have two more airplanes to learn and about two more years of school after that before you'd be even close to going into combat. Yeah, I mean... At, at the very fastest timeline nowadays. Yeah. Modern pilot training, like the fastest you could probably do it in about two and a half years-ish. And then you're just a wingman when you get back, right? You're making popcorn and sweeping the floor. In three months, he's flying in combat. It's crazy. Yeah, and there's a lot of things going on here. Obviously, the, the pipeline isn't as developed then, and uh, the airplanes are relatively simpler, so there's fewer systems to learn and that kind of stuff. But it's still nuts to think about how quick that timeline is. It is. And you can imagine he's, he's learning how to really learning how to fly over the front lines. That's when he's really learning it. And he is wasting no time in learning how to fly. It, it doesn't seem like they were actually assigned missions reading between the lines. It's like, yeah, kind of go fly when you can type of deal. And he flies all the time. He outflies everybody. And his reports are so accurate, the German high command don't believe them initially. Um, they're so comprehensive that they had to, at first, be um, they had to be verified by another source before they could be believed. And then eventually they're like, all right, no, these guys are just, they're pretty accurate. <laughs> they know what they're doing. Um, and, and this is them, it's not just, I mean, it's his reports, but it's also the high command starting to learn the value of aviation in general. Exactly. And as they're learning this, the brothers have to keep moving farther and farther west because this is they're behind the wave of the Schlieffen plan. So they go farther and farther west into France proper, and they make it as far as Bar-le-Duc. And so he's, he's regularly flying with his brother now, right? He only flies with his brother, yeah. They actually they call it an airplane marriage, which is a little weird. But um, he just flies with his brother. And they make as far west as Bar Le Duc Airfield, which I point out because this is the same airfield that the Lafayette Escadrille is going to set up at later once the lines are pushed farther east. So the famous American squadron is going to be flying out of here uh, in a couple of years, but Bolka finds himself there. And as he's moving forward, he does, again, begin to see the serious side of war. This is sort of a, a trend we have. And yesterday, uh, he writes, yesterday I saw the serious side of war for the first time. Shell-torn and charred villages, newly dug soldiers' graves, and dead horses lying everywhere. Corpses lay unburied round the churchyard. So it's, he's definitely realizing this isn't all just a game. But when he writes, he does talk about it as sport all the time. To him, the, the fight in the air is sort of sport. Although he hasn't gotten to fighting yet, he will. Um, and it's not all roses for the German army as they're marching west. Because we talked about the miracle of the Marne. The, the Germans get pushed back. He writes in September 1914, uh, retreat. And he said there's a nasty defeat of the nasty rumor of the defeat of the first and second armies. So they get all the way west. They have to kind of get pushed back. And then they get settled into a, a bit of an equilibrium once the trenches get set up. And one thing that's interesting is Bolka and his brother they basically outshine everybody else a little bit too much. And they get a reputation in their squadron, um, and no one really likes them, basically, because they're making everyone else look bad, is what it seems like. I mean, they're doing their job, and they're doing it well, right? They're doing a job, they're doing it well, but they are doing it a lot better than everyone else, and it's making everyone else certain uh, question. And, and their, their commander doesn't really like the two of them from or at least from the letters we get from Bolka. And they basically split the two brothers up. And I don't know exactly what else was going on. This was one instance in which I would love to hear the other side of the story. But 
for sure, if this is one instance in which Polka was not the natural leader, everyone didn't necessarily love him here. And uh, he basically gets reassigned to a, a new unit. And when he get re- gets reassigned, he's already made a name for himself quite a bit by flying so much. He actually has the Iron Cross at this point in time, which is uh, a pretty uh, high decoration to get in the German army. Um, but he is reassigned to that flying section 62 or Staffel 62, which is the, where he meets Max Immelman. And then he starts flying still initially in observation planes, but uh, he's flying with a lot of other like-minded pilots in this sort of advanced section. And it was in this advanced section, which they got a new airplane. And I'm actually not talking about the Eindecker yet. We're talking about the Albatross C or the Albatross Charlie. And the big difference uh, in this Albatross versus the other versions of it is they took the pilot, which was originally or who was originally seating uh, in the aft part of the plane, and they put him in the forward section. So now he's in front of the uh, observer, which is a more natural place for the pilot to be. And the observer is behind him now with a, a machine gun. And so it's a little bit more of a weapon of war. It's armed. And Bolka begins to go looking to pick a fight uh, like William Wallace. Uh, and although it takes him a while to actually get his first kill, I have a, a transcript here of what he wrote about a kind of a, a log of one of average day uh, on the front lines. And so this is an average day with the Albatross. Uh, 11.20 a.m. Fight near Nouvelle. French machine broke away, engine trouble, returned 40 rounds. Uh, 6.30 p.m. Fought English Avro biplane near Lens. Gun jammed after 80 rounds, went down four holes in wings. 8.50 p.m. Fight near Lens. French machine went down. Fight near Arras. French machine went down. Fought five French biplanes near Nouvelle. One went down. But other four attacked us. Retreated. 880 rounds. And when he talks about those planes going down, they're not getting shot down. He's on their side of the lines, so they're just diving away from him and, like, landing. And this is why it was so hard to actually carry an attack through and kill the other uh, pilots or down the other enemy airplane to the point where it was destroyed. If you were on the French side of the lines, they would just usually run away and land. And so it was more advantageous to catch them on the German side of the lines, but they oftentimes wouldn't go there. Um, I think it's probably worth explaining here a little bit, too, that generally when you're in uh, a dogfight type scenario, the fight might start at a higher altitude, but generally you're going to go downhill because what happens is as you start to turn tightly, you can tighten up your turn radius by pointing your jet a little bit downhill and using some of that energy that you gain from pointing your jet downhill to continue that tight turn circle and maintain some airspeed on your aircraft Uh, And so what happens is over the course of the fight, generally you go from high to low and eventually you end up near the floor. And if there happen to be uh, enemy machine guns at the floor, then that's probably a place that you don't want to go. Exactly. And when we talk about pulling G's in in a fighter jet, right, that's the gravity we're pulling. You're creating such an acceleration that you feel multiple times the force of gravity. But there's always one extra G you can get in a turn if you point the aircraft down, which is gravity. So if you have a slightly downhill vector in a turn, it will turn sharper than if it's going uphill and you'll maintain more kinetic energy or more airspeed in that turn. And so typically it turns tighter than if you go uphill where the turn circle tends to open up. And if you go 
uphill, their turn circle opens up for even just a minute. If there's someone killing you, that might be the moment they need to kill you. And so, like you said, yeah, most fights will descend. And then there was anti-aircraft guns that the Germans had to worry about. And so <laughs> these were notoriously bad for both pilots. Like a lot of times the French didn't want to fly low on their own side either because there was no way to really tell other than the colored markings and a couple thousand feet up, who knows. But that is where most fights descended. And then if the French could get down to the ground, usually it wasn't worth following them because you could get hit from machine gun fire or artillery fire if you were following them down. And so even though he's forcing a lot of planes down, he's shooting them up uh, with his observer. They're not counting as kills yet, right? Um, however, on July 4th, 1915, uh, Bolka was tasked to protect another recon aircraft when a French monoplane approached from a greater altitude. And already we can see he's not really operating as an observer. He's operating as a fighter because he's protecting this other observation plane. Uh, Bolka flew his aircraft away and then behind the Frenchman and gave chase. And this gives us a little bit of a idea of he's already thinking about tactics. He didn't just fly right at him. He almost like lured him away and then attacked. Um, and it took about 30 minutes for him to catch up. So this is almost like a comically slow car chase, you know, or aircraft chase here. It takes him 30 minutes. He can see the other airplane, but because they're so slow and there's so little V sub C or closure that it takes 30 minutes for him to catch up. I'm imagining the scene from, I think it's Austin Powers. I guess say there's some Austin Powers, right? Gets run over by a steamroller or something that and it takes yeah. 45 seconds for it to drive across the, the room and actually hit him. The, yeah. There's also a great Seinfeld episode where George is pretending he's handicapped and he has one of those motorized scooters and people find out he's faking and they start chasing after him, but they're all on motorized scooters. Eventually his battery dies and he picks up the scooter and runs with it. But this is the type of chase we're having here. The stakes are no less high for George Costanza or for Oswald Polka. Um, but anyways, eventually he catches up and then he starts attacking this airplane. And the fight lasts 20 to 25 minutes of shooting this other airplane. That's crazy. Like a, a standard dogfight, what we would do today... And granted, we cut these short a little bit usually for gas, but it's like a minute, a minute and a half. And you're burning tons of fuel in that minute and a half. And it's a very, very violent knife fight in a phone booth usually type of thing. This is anything but that. Uh, but anyways, they're fighting for about 25 minutes. Uh, and Bolka said he could spot every wire in detail. He gets within about 30 meters. So about 100 feet away. I mean, this is a pretty close in fight. Uh, and they could plainly see the pilot and the observer who even tried to eventually just wave Bolka and the gunner off, signaling that they had been defeated. But this is war, and there was no way to take them as prisoners at this point in time, and they weren't landing on the French side of the line. So um, they just continued. And uh, after one burst of 30 to 40 rounds, the French plane went down into a steep dive and fell into the woods below. And I, I, I'll correct myself there. I think they were on the German side of the lines here. Um but they were still in France because when Bolka landed nearby to see the wreckage for himself, they found the machine already had a crowd around it. Both the pilot and the observer were dead. And in a weird twist of fate, the pilot of the down machine was the owner of the woods into which they crashed. So I'm guessing he was a little bit of an aristocrat or something and owned a pretty big plot of land or was just very unlucky and happened to land in like his little one acre of woods that he owned. But I mean, I guess it makes sense that if you were, if the place where your property was got taken over by the Germans and you became a pilot, you might, you might fly over that area and check it out. 
Exactly. Can you imagine, too? Like, imagine right now if part of the East Coast of the United States was taken over by a foreign country. How crazily you would be fighting to get those people off of our land. And that's what this guy's doing. Um, but unfortunately for him, he went up against Oswald, up against Oswald Bolka, and ended up being Oswald Bolka's first kill. Um, Bolka and his gunner went back a few days later to visit the graves of the men that they killed. So it's definitely not like a heartless individual, even though I said they guys may have been trying to give up, um, and they continued the attack. And the events of July fourth are considered to be the first victories of the German Air Force. I don't know if anyone was unofficially brought down before that, but those are the official victories, uh, and that goes to Bolka. Um, however, <clears throat> he does get delivery of that Eindecker, so he ditches the two-seater, Albatross, Charlie, and he starts flying the Eindecker, and he writes to his parents that, I believe the strong man is mightiest alone. I've attained my ideal with this new single-seater. Now I can be pilot, observer, and fighter all in one. I feel like that should almost be a quote in the squadron somewhere for a single seat squadron. Like that is a pretty good definition of why guys want to be single seat fighter pilots. Yeah. And we talked about how the Eindecker is really, it's really the first real fighter plane. Yeah. It is a gun platform. It is actually got a forward firing machine gun where now it's mimicking what we do in a dogfight today without missiles, obviously, but it's that first real fighter plane and he's the first guy to fly it. In the last episode, we talked about, although Boca was the first to fly it, Immelman was the first to get a kill in the Eindecker. And that was on August 1st. Uh, Boca's version of events, as we mentioned, is a, are a little bit different. His events are that he went and he attacks these 10 Entente planes by himself. He's about to attack and his gun gets his like irrecoverable jam. So now he has no weapons and there's 10 planes who are all armed in front of him. So that's why he dives away. One plane was late to the fight, and his story, at least the version of the account, and that's the one plane that Immelman found and was able to shoot down. Uh, either way, Immelman, for a fact, does get that first kill. Bolka gets his first victory in an Eindecker on August 17th, and now they're both able to start racking up kills as single-seat fighter pilots. Um, but what's remarkable is as Bolka is attacking the French. He's, uh, you know, living in a French town on the German side of the lines. And as he's walking around town one day in his dress grays, typical Germans have dress grays. Um, he's walking around and he sees a 15 year old boy fall into a canal at Douai and he jumps in and the kid didn't know how to swim, so he was actually under the surface. Bolka, in full dress uniform, swims underneath the surface, is able to find the kid, pulls him up, drags him into a boat, and saves his 15-year-old's life. He even, like, brings him back to his house, makes sure his family is okay. And the family is so struck with this, they nominate Bolka for, like, the Legion of Honor that we've talked about with uh, Roland Garros and Adolf Piquois. He doesn't get it because he's actively killing Frenchmen in the skies over the Western Front, but he does get a German life-saving medal, and he does save the life of a French kid while he's fighting the French, which is, I don't know, it's almost beautiful in a way that, you know, it went beyond this, like, air war for him. It was, I'm going to do my job in the air, and then when you get to the ground, he showed this with people he shot down as well. He did show kindness and compassion, 
and sort of the honorable war was still alive in his mind. Honorable or not, he does go on, though, and continue to rack up kills against the French and the British. And as he's doing this with Max Immelmann, and as more and more Fokker Eindeckers arrive on the front, this is when the Fokker scourge really starts taking place. So sort of fall of 1915 into the winter of 1916. And Bolka literally talks about crossing the lines to go hunting, is the way he put it. And the Jagdstaffels are hunting squadrons that eventually get formed. Like that's the actual verbiage that the Germans used and were kind of thinking about was going hunting across the lines. And the hunting was was good uh, initially. Um, uh, and they even begin to start using the Eindecker in uh, an alert type way as well in order to protect VIPs that showed up on the front lines. On the 27th, Bolka was tasked to basically be ready to take off at any time to protect Kaiser Wilhelm himself, who was doing a tour of the front. And apparently, I don't know if they had just broken the code or what have you, but the French knew about Wilhelm's arrival and they bombed the station exactly as is due to arrive. So Bolka was a little bit late to the fight on that one, but he did attack all 10 bombers again himself. He shot one to pieces before the other nine turned around and were forced to retreat in his words, they were just kind. He was kind enough to send them some greetings, which is how he always writes. It's very funny. Like he's talking about life and death, but he's always putting it in these very superfluous terms. Um, by October 16th, 1915, Boca had scored his fifth kill, making him an ace. And because of the overwhelming technical superiority of the Germans at this time, the French and British almost stopped crossing the lines to observe, which is very important because that's actually what how we're linking the air war to the ground war is all these observations, right? And the French and British basically stop and we'll see that has a big effect uh, when we get to the winter of 1916. Um, and we talked about a little how Bolka and Immelman became these celebrities. And I actually have a poem. Uh, I'm not sure this is the best poem in the world, but we have a poem from a German newspaper uh, circa 1916 here, and it's called The Flying Match. Immelman, the trusty flyer, daily screws his plane up higher. Bolka, too, delights to roam in the clouds where he's at home. If a foe comes downward hurling, Bolka's guns send him whirling. He's an insult to the Frenchies, who bolt and dan vanish in the trenches. Victims five had Bolka outed. Read the papers if you doubt it. Immelman refused to slumber till he got the same self-same number. So this is like what you're reading back, back at home. About I got to ask this. This was from a German newspaper, but was it written in English? I know I said that. Uh, and I was thinking the same thing. It is in the book as a German newspaper. I'm sure they changed the words. I mean, that's a lot of words to change to make it. Yeah. Maybe it was written language. in English in a German paper. I don't know. This is the English translation of obviously, Everything a Boko wrote was in German, and it's an English translation of that. So I'm not exactly sure. We can do some uh, some research on that. But this is the type of thing that they would have been reading as the German. Uh, we just have the English version of it. And then uh, in the Immelman episode, again, we mentioned January 1916. Uh, Boka and Immelman both get awarded with the Blue Max. Um, I guess the blue Oswald just doesn't have the same doesn't, ring to it. Not quite the same ring. Uh, so Maximum gets the legacy on that one. 
but he does get the Germany's equivalent of the Medal of Honor, and he gets, uh, you know, vaulted into a whole new stratosphere at that point. And in January, he at one spot, at one point, spots two biplanes over Lule. He takes off, he intercepts them, and after he shoots them down, uh, he lands close to them. And I'll, I'll let his words take it from here. He says, I chose a landing spot close by. When I reached the enemy machine, I found it surrounded by a crowd of men. Both the airmen had already been bandaged uh, by two ambulance men. The pilot had a flesh wound on his head. The other had a nasty shot in the shoulder. I went straight up to the Englishmen, shook hands with them, and told them I was delighted to have brought them down alive. I had a long talk with a pilot who spoke German well. When he heard my name, he said with a grin, we all know about you. So, like I said, both sides of the lines, they know about this guy. And uh, in January, he has seven kills, and he is becoming the knight of Germany. And that's what the book, uh, well, one of the books that I got a lot of my my material or our material from was The Knight of Germany, um, Oswald Bolka. And it is sort of, the Germans take this and they really do make these guys knights in their mind. You know, they, they fought with the Iron Cross, which goes back to kind of Teutonic days. It's painted on the side of the airplanes. And when World War I started, we've talked about there was this idea of having a glorious war. Cavalry officers still wore breastplates and like plumed helmets like knights. Um, none of that really stood up very well to machine guns, uh, however. And there's even a there's an argument that World War I was so bad it changed language because before it was very much an honor culture and there's an argument that you can't even use some of those words like honor the same way after the war that was used during the war when you have millions of people being slaughtered and things like chlorine gas are being used it's hard to talk about an honorable war right but the myth of the fighter pilots born at the same time where it still is quote unquote honorable. You have these duels that take place in front of everybody and pilots land and shake hands afterwards. And he's the, the figurehead of keeping that alive for the Germans, at least early on in the war. Well, you got to think too, at this time, any of the, the fighter kills that are happening, they are within visual range of each other. They're seeing the other human being there and there's, somewhat of an even matching sure you might have a fighter plane against a bomber or against a, an observer plane um but that's a much more honorable setup than you can imagine you're just walking along through a trench and all of a sudden an artillery shell lands on you there's yeah. a skill matters so much more right and I, I skill matters on the ground i know mr chow used to be a marine he just had a, a heart attack when i said that but i'm saying that there's a lot less friction fog there's a lot less chaos in the air it's still chaotic but if you got into 1v1, which a lot of these do descend into, I think pilot's skill outweighs that. It's very clear who you're fighting as well. I guess the, the point that I was trying to make with that is that, uh, so there's a there's a book called On Killing. And it's it's written by, I, th- I think he was a Marine Lieutenant Colonel, maybe an Army guy. Jeffrey uh, Dahmer. Uh, Gross, Grossman is the, name, is the name of the author. Um, it's an interesting book. But one, one of the things that he talks about in this book is how killing gets much easier the farther and farther away you, the killer gets from the person being killed. And you can you can be removed in physical distance, and you can also be removed in the sense of you're pressing a button or pulling a trigger or pulling the cord on an artillery piece, 
uh, versus you are stabbing yeah, someone, you know, stabbing someone in the stomach with a bayonet. Uh, that's a much more difficult thing to do. Uh, and so I think with the artillery and with the, the mustard gas, I think a lot of the times the guys that are doing the killing in those cases, they're not seeing the people that they're killing. They're just firing on coordinates and it's all very dehumanized. Uh, and we talk about this a lot, you know, with how this relates to modern day combat and, you know, you've got a, a, somebody operating a drone, they're in Syracuse, New York, they're operating a drone that's in a remote country in Africa. Yeah, they're playing a video game they're, almost. They're almost playing a video game. They're, they're, they're pressing a button and dropping a hellfire on a, you know, a heat signature. And it just, a, it makes, it, it creates a strange dynamic. Uh, and it, it makes the killing a lot easier in some cases. Yeah, well, it's less personal, like you right. said, less humanizing. Um, yeah, it, but for Bulka, it was very human. Like we talked about, I mean, he, he's seeing exactly what this person you know looks like. In some cases, I'm thinking of one in particular. I forget which pilot it was from the Lafayette Escadrille. Um, let's see if I can get the name for you later. But he lands after the German pilot he shoots down. Right, just like Volker does in all these cases, but the guy's dying. He's like a gut wound, and he's dying slowly and badly. And he's like, "I wish I didn't land and watch this now." You know, it was kind of it was a little bit easier in the sky because, shooting after an airport. Bird Hall, I think, is who that was. Yeah, I think that, that sounds right. Yeah, and he lands after him, and now has to watch this guy slowly die. And he's it turns the victory for him. Obviously, you know what I mean. Is it was no longer this glorious battle. It was just. A guy who looked probably a lot like him, who had the similar interest in him, who's now dying of a gut wound in front of him, right? Um, that being said, Bolka is still lifted up as this knight of Germany, and they're going to need this knight of Germany as uh, German, the German army goes to storm the castle of Verdun, right? And I want to talk a little bit about Verdun because it, this is fascinating to me. That's why I started the episode with a little bit of a glance at Verdun, because it almost seems like Verdun is the last place the German army would want to attack. Uh, it is um, not even a city. It's a fortified region. It has 28 forts that span both sides of the Meuse River, and it, it was kind of thought to be impenetrable, right? Um, it has this high ground above the river, too, and it was basically impenetrable for 1500 years. We talk about the German army being called the Huns until the Hun in the year 500 actually attacked uh, Verdun and he was beaten back. And so Verdun is held up as this national symbol of defense for the French, right? And it's actually that reason of it being this national symbol that the Germans decided to attack Verdun, but they did so with a little bit of insidious intent here. Normally, you know, in a battle, the object isn't actually to kill everyone on the other side. The object is to have this big maneuver where you capture some sort of strategic center of gravity or you surround the army and they surrender, et cetera, et cetera. But the German high command, specifically this uh, General Falkenhayn, who was in charge of the army, he is trying to figure out a way to win the war for the Germans. And he has come to the conclusion that whoever's on the defensive in this war because of the trenches and the machine guns has a huge advantage. So how do you actually get the French to attack is his uh, problem he's trying to solve. Okay. And what he's trying to take advantage of 
is Germany's larger population. We've talked about this a couple of times. Germany's population wasn't quite double that of France's. I said that before, but Germany's population was approaching 70 million. France's was a little bit less 30, than 30 million or so in France. It was a little less than 40. Okay. It was like 38 million, something like that, depending on exactly which source you look at there. But, and this, this blows my mind. France's population, we'll call it 40 million for round numbers. They mobilize almost 8 million men. So let's do some quick math. 40 million, half of those are women. So you have 20 million men, including children and old men in your country, and you mobilize 8 million. It was something like 80% of the people between, or the men between 18 and 45 were mobilized. That's insane. Uh, in America today, that would be like us mobilizing 65 million men or something. Out of those 8 million, over the course of the war, the French had 4.5 million casualties. Now that includes wounded and dead. About 1.5 million dead, uh, 3 million wounded, and a lot of those were like severe amputations and stuff like that. It wasn't you got, you know, a cut on you that required a couple stitches. And so as this is progressing along the war, Falkenhayn comes up with this idea of a battle of attrition where he is going to, quote unquote, bleed the French white, which is a terrifying thing when you think about it. He's going to bleed them until they can't bleed anymore. So his plan is... I'm going to attack Verdun because Verdun is this national symbol of defense and they can't let it fall. And if, if they fall, it'll be too big of a, of a blow to their morale. And so his plan was, I'm just going to do a very, very limited offensive. I'm going to take the high ground and just a couple of the forts. But with that high ground, I'm going to be able to shell oblivion. I mean, shell Verdun into oblivion, right? And it's going to force the French to attack me. And so that's his idea. It's actually like pretty subtle, uh, you know, in that I'm going to force a huge French counterattack and I'm going to be able to just sit in my trenches and mow them down. That was his idea. The actual, uh, and it starts with that huge barrage we talked about with all those guns shooting a million rounds. To this day, there are millions of unexploded rounds uh, in Verdun. The battle lasts nine months. It's absolutely huge. Um, and... We can talk a little bit more about how the battle progresses, but his it all started with complete surprise to the French because they weren't able to cross the lines to see this huge buildup, right? Because guys like Bolka and everyone else in the Eindeckers were preventing the French from observing, right? And that's really, even if you're not getting kills, if you were preventing that, that is the how the air war is actually helping the ground war. Turns out air superiority is important. Air superiority is important. Um and so initially when that battle kicks off, the French are taken completely off guard um, and they literally have to start bringing like their entire army through Verdun because it's so brutal to be in there for two weeks or so. So they, they have this thing called the Sacred Roads from Barleduc to Verdun. Um, they had a basically <clears throat> one road that they could resupply the, the area with and they brought, they made a rotation through so you didn't have to stay in the actual city too long because it was so hellish to be in there. You'd be in there for a couple of weeks, get rotated out, and they bring like 90% of their army through there over the course of the battle. Even the phrase, um, uh, they shall not pass, right, from Lord of the Rings, it's from the French high command at the Battle of Verdun. J uh, I'm going to say J.K. Rowling. Uh, Tolkien fought in World War One. I. I don't know if he was in Verdun or not. He was a British soldier, so probably not. But... um. He, he took a lot of inspiration from, from World War I. And 
what's important here is that for, for our story, at least for Bolka is Bolka is leading the charge over this battle for the Germans to prevent the French from continuing to observe. And the French throw everything they have into this battle uh, for the air. And the Germans are pretty sorely outnumbered, but Bolka is at least in the beginning able to kind of hold back the tide from everything that we've seen. Um, and this gets me to a really cool point. And this is like the central point that I like to think about for Bolka besides what he does later on um, with his contributions to tactics, which is I think as a fighter pilot, you have the ability to have a disproportionate impact on the battle at large. There are millions of men fighting in the trenches in Verdun. There's a couple hundred people in the air above Verdun. And no one is more important in the air than Bolka. Most fighter pilots in World War I, even though they were fighting in combat, had exactly zero kills. Right? And then of the pilots that had kills, there's a very few that have a ton of kills. And this is going to become Oswald Bolka. Right? So he, one individual can have, and not just as a commander not as someone who's making the decisions but as an actual combatant he has this huge disproportionate impact on the whole battle and it kind of comes down to that Pareto principle if you've heard of it I don't care what the actual numbers are but the point is that usually in every domain there is a very small amount of people that have a disproportionate impact and that's Oswald Bolka in the Battle of Verdun one of the biggest uh, forts that falls is this fort Dumont and it's almost undefended when it falls because they didn't realize it was going to get attacked, right? And that all comes down to the decision-making and, and those reconnaissance plans and preventing that from happening. And uh, the the big thing, though, that, that he ends up fighting against is the numerical superiority, and also the Allies have been catching up. We talked about this in Immelman's uh, episode. The Allies, they released the Newport 11, which still doesn't have an interrupter gear, so they're doing that over-the-wing firing where you have to stand up to freaking reload in an open cockpit plane. But aerodynamically, it's superior to the Eindecker, and it does have a forward-firing machine gun. So he is fighting against a, a numerical superiority there. He's also fighting a little bit against a technological or technological superiority, or at least even at this point because they've got the interrupter gear, uh, but they're not as aerodynamically um, advanced. And then the other thing um, that he has to deal with is, he, in his words, he has new customers, <laughs> uh, is the Americans are entering the war in a very, very limited way with the Lafayette Escadrille. So only uh, volunteers, it's one Escadrille, but it is cool cool to see their side of it and also a bulk side over Verdun. And we're going to do probably a whole series series or several episodes on the Lafayette Escadrille. So we won't get too much into it now. We'll just look at it from. Um, but these so, are American pilots that are flying in the French or in the Entente Air Force, basically. Exactly. They're flying for the French specifically. Right. Um, and the Escadrille was named after the Marquis de Lafayette, who helped the Americans during the Revolutionary War, helped us win the uh, Revolutionary War. And uh, Bolka's first... Uh, time coming across these uh, Americans is when a different German pilot lands at his airfield and says they've been attacked by Newports, but they could clearly see the American flag on the side of the airplanes. And the German pilot has this great quote says the devil is loose at the front, 
There are six Americans aloft. I distinctly saw the American flag on their fuselages. They're damn impotent fellows. They came right up to the lines and crossed them. And so you can see already, like, the French aren't crossing the lines that much. The Germans were surprised that these Newports crossed the lines. It's because the Americans showed up and were like, we don't care. We're crossing the lines. Um, Bolka immediately jumps in his Eindecker, uh, and he said, courtesy requires him to go say hello. <laughs> A little bit more of that language he likes to use. And he attacks all six Americans, but his guns jam again. Pretty common instance here. Uh, they turn to attack him, and he's able to escape from these six Americans. For a while, there was a news report saying that they shot him down, which is obviously incorrect. Um, but some of the f- most famous pilots from the Lafayette Escadrille, like Raoul Lufberry, uh, will basically be going toe-to-toe with Bolka across the lines and normally not getting the better end of it. Uh, Lufberry writes about having holes in his jacket and almost like if he had turned his body slightly the other way, he would have just died. Um, same with Victor Chapman, who takes a head wound from a, a, a glancing shot from Bolka. But it is sort of Bolka who is definitely leading the charge for the Germans over those lines. And by June, he's racked up 19 kills now. So went from seven in January to now 19 kills. And when Immelman dies with 17, they were, they had continued to go back and forth. But now Boca is by far and away the leading ace of the German Air Force and of the whole war uh, when Immelman dies. And when Immelman dies, it's a huge moment for the war because essentially the Germans have realized the propaganda machine. They have these, you know, poems being written about these two guys and they they know they can't afford to lose Bolka now so they actually pull him from service but he is such a you know he's a fighter pilot and he's got that the disdain for the rules that I love where the order didn't go in effect for two more days so Bolka goes up he flies he shoots down another American he like or excuse me another Entente plane he logs his kill with high command or whatever, and they're like, wait, you're killing people still? Get off the front lines. And so they move the order date up, and Kaiser Wilhelm even writes to him because he's now talking to the Kaiser on a somewhat regular basis. And uh, Kaiser Wilhelm says, you see, we have to put a leash on you now because they can't afford to lose him. And so what they plan to do with him is basically just send him east. They want to send him to the eastern front, not to fight, but just to do a tour. Really just want to get him out of the thick of things and, and protect him. And although this is not very good for our friend Bolka, who wants to be on the front lines, it does give him the time to reflect. And this is when he actually really crystallizes all of those lessons learned from the front. Fighting there now for a couple of years almost. 19 kills. You know, he's seen a lot of air combat and pulling him out of there gives him the time to write what becomes known as the Dicta Bolka, or it's the first eight rules of air combat. And what's incredible is these, these rules almost all still apply today, at least in one version or another. And so we're going to cover them quickly. Next episode is actually just going to be an in-depth dive of the Dicta Bolka and his contributions in terms of the brief and debrief. But I do want to at least read them real quickly right now. So, rule one, dicta one, is try to secure advantages before attacking. 
If possible, keep the sun behind you. Two, always carry through an attack when you have started it. Three, fire only at close range and only when your opponent is properly in your sights. Four, keep your eye on your opponent and never let yourself be deceived by ruses. Five, in any form of attack, it's essential to assail your enemy from behind. Six, if your opponent dives on you, do not... uh, Six, if your opponent dives on you, do not try to evade his onslaught, but fly to meet it. Seven, when over the enemy's lines, never forget your own line of retreat. And eight, for the Stoffel or the squadron, attack on principle in groups of four or six, but take care that several do not go after the same opponent. And so Bolko writes these this dicta out. He gets to really think about his uh, you know lessons that he got from all that air combat, but he also gets some time to relax. <laughs> and there are there's some a lot of scenes that are just kind of nice scenes of Bolka hanging out on yachts. He like at one point his Batman is a little unsure, so he like pushes him off the boat, but then jumps in after him. It's one of those things where he would be a jerk if he just pushed him off the boat, but the fact that he jumps in, you're like, oh yeah, he's just a twenty something year old guy like letting off steam from two years of fighting on the front. You know what I mean? Yeah, I think it's also interesting to remember how young he is still. Yeah, and he will eventually become friends with Eric Baum, who is like a 38-year-old pilot, and those two hit it off, and Baum says it's almost like because he sometimes acts like he's 38, and he's in charge of all these people, but he is just still a young man. Um, while Bolka is out east, the British... Uh, launched the Battle of the Somme. And the the French are a part of it as well. It was going to initially be a unified offensive from the uh, British and the French, but because the French were so occupied with Verdun, it becomes mostly a British battle. And the British are launching it mostly to just relieve pressure from Verdun so they can bring some of the German troops uh, north and hopefully save Verdun. And... As this starts, it's, it's initially disastrous for the British. They lose 20,000 people, like, dead in the first day. It's incredible to think about that. I mean, the numbers are ridiculous. There are more men lost in the Battle of Verdun than in the entire American Civil War on both sides. Okay? It, the, the numbers are mind-blowing. Mind uh, but it does make the Germans hard-pressed. During this time, they basically completely lost uh, air supremacy. And whether or not that's just because they pulled Bolka aside, like I know we can't give them too much credit, but it definitely didn't help to take your best fighter ace off the lines. There's only a few, couple hundred airplanes at this time, and the guy shot down 20. You know, that is half of the airplanes that Germany had at the start of the war. That's ridiculous. That's an entire squadron in today's standards. And so German high command realizes, all right, it's been long enough. We have to get this guy back to the front. So they pull him back uh, by the end of August, and they let Bolka handpick pilots to form a new Jagdstaffel or Hunter, Hunter Squadron, and it's going to be uh, Jagdstaffel Two. I think the first one actually may have been designated for Immelman uh, because there is no Jagdstaffel One, uh, but he forms a uh, Yasta Two is the short version of it, Yasta Two. Um, and among the pilots that he handpicks is 
Manfred von Richthofen, and Erwin Brom. I, saw, I called him Eric Brom before, so my bad on that one. Erwin Brom. Uh, and he forms this squadron. He brings them to the front lines. He actually doesn't let them fly initially. He's teaching these guys. So he holds them on the ground to teach them while he continues to fly. And it's an incredible tear that he begins to go off in September and October. In one week, he gets five kills in September. In the month, he gets 10. So he goes from 19 kills up to 30 kills because uh, he gets his 11th very shortly after that in just the first month of being back on the squ- on the front lines. Um, and while he's doing that, he's teaching these new pilots, the Dick Bolka, and he is uh, briefing them and debriefing them, which is sort of a new concept. And it's absolute cornerstones of being a fighter pilot today is the brief and the debrief. You know, there's three parts of every sortie, the brief, the actual flying, and the debrief. And much more time is spent during the brief and the debrief than flying. And Bolka is sort of the first one to do this. And he's even the first one to kind of do intel briefs. So in a modern Air Force, intel will tell you about the enemy fighters, strengths, weaknesses. And Bolka literally has these fighters usually, he has a physical copy of one of them. Or he has the physical thing that landed on the German side of the lines. He's bringing his students to look at them. Uh, say, hey, this is how you attack. You don't want to attack these airplanes from behind, the observation planes. You know, you want you want to attack them from below and behind, not above and behind, because they can shoot up there, but they can't shoot low. So he's teaching them all these different things in order to survive, and they become very, very lethal. And once his squadron starts flying together, they are very, very successful. He often flies with the Red Baron, uh, or the guy who will become the Red Baron, Manfred von Richthofen, and Erwin Brahm, who they become very fast friends there. And they're bringing down a whole lot of planes together as a unit now. And in one such instance, which became kind of famous, uh, he brings down a RFC pilot named Captain Wilson. And so I just want to read you actually Captain Wilson's account of the engagement because it's sort of fascinating to me. So this is uh, RFC Captain Wilson in his own words. As you know, I fly a fast Vickers fighter. I went on reconnaissance work. I saw a German scout intending to polish off one of our old slow BEs and came just in time to rescue it. After I loosed off a couple of shots at the German, he went into a turn and flew home. I was fool enough to chase him. Never be deceived by ruses. And failed to spot that he only wanted to lure me farther into his territory. When I had followed him about 15 miles behind German lines, he turned around and attacked me by climbing above me at a fabulous speed. He flew a machine I never saw before, and I had no idea of its speed and climbing uh, capacity. I hardly let off a couple shots before my gun jammed so that I could not fire a single round more. Under these circumstances, I did the only thing left to me and fled out of the way of a much better machine and superior pilot. I tried to shake him off by all sorts of tricks, but he followed all of my movements magnificently and sat on my neck the whole time. He shot away all my my controls, with the exception of the two that were jammed, shot holes in my machine, shot the throttle away while I had my hand on it, and then put some holes in my tank and a couple in my coat, which was soaked with petrol. Naturally, I lost all control over my machine, which whizzed down in a nosedive, a most uncomfortable sensation. I sat there pretty dizzy and waiting for the crash when I hit the ground below, 
But when, about 50 feet up, I made a desperate tug at the stick and somehow attained enough control at the last moment to dodge the crash and bring some sort of landing. However, the machine in my coat caught fire. I managed to jump out and pull my coat off without getting burnt. The German came down quite low and flew as soon as he made sure I was settled. Next day, Bulk invited me to his aerodrome and entertained me in the mess. We're also photographed together. So literally, we have a picture of Oswald Bulka and RFC Wilson here. And Wilson goes on to write, I got a very fine impression of him, both as a pilot and as a man. And this fight will remain my greatest memory of my life, even though it turned out badly for me. So again, another example of him bringing down a pilot, but then he goes and meet him. And this pilot, who is a British guy who nearly died, is saying he's a fine man and it's the greatest memory of his life just to be shot down by Bulka, which is kind of incredible. I also can't imagine... I wanted to read the full account, even though it's a bit lengthy, because imagine actually being that guy. You're flying an airplane. Someone's shooting the throttle out from underneath your hand. You have bullets in your jacket. You end up catching on fire and then jumping out of an airplane uh, when it hits the ground. Like, And then you get a nice breakfast. And then you get breakfast. You take a picture with the guy who shot you down. You, like, hang out. And they're, I mean, you even dressed up. Like, he's in full uniform in this photo. So is Bulka. He's got his, like, pour them on his, uh, you know, breast there. And it's just, like, uh, I don't even want to say breast in rough. It's romantic. That felt a little weird. But anyway, he's got his pour them on his uh, breastplate there on his coat. Um, on his chest, maybe. On his chest is probably the word I'm looking for. Um, but it's just a, a crazy account. I it would be insane to be shot down and then hang out with this guy. And that moment of having, for some reason, thinking of having the throttle shot off from your hand and then not having your hand get hit just sounds insane. Um, but <clears throat> as the, as the war continues, these stories are more or less the average day for Oswald Bolka. Um, he does write to his mother, which is interesting, at the end of September to not to worry that he is unfeeling in killing all these different people. And he just tries to remind her that it's the airplane that they're counting and not the people. Because some people were saying that you shouldn't even be counting this. This is kind of gross that you're counting how many people you've killed, right? And they're trying to bring it back to, no, 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 this is just the airplane. Um, and his squadron has a, a an immediate effect on the war, which is why I, I go back to him being this guy who can have a disproportionate impact of just being one 25-year-old guy in the war. Uh, in one book, on it's called Der Liftkrieg, so it's still a German book. Uh, Captain Hans Ritter writes that, Under the leadership of Volker, the German Jagdstaffels accomplished the wonderful feat of gradually checking the activities of the enemy aircraft to such an extent, despite their n- numerical superiority, that our own reconnaissance machines were eased of their burdens and could work again. At the same time, they had sufficient forces left to put a very perceptible check on the activities of the enemy artillery planes that had hitherto worked practically unmolested. The attacks of the Entente lost a considerable amount of thrust when their unconditional supremacy of the air was abolished. In the late autumn of Bloodstain 1916, the Battle of the Somme slowed down to its end, and a lot of that can be contributed to Bolkler just coming back to the front, which is incredible. One guy having this huge impact on this battle of millions of people. But like for Bolka and Immelman um, before him, it takes its, takes its 
wear on you. Uh, it takes its toll on you, rather, and it wears down the individual to be flying constantly. He's flying six sorties a day, which is ridiculous. Six combat sorties a day. And uh, Bulka's Batman, who stayed with him from the time that he graduated uh, his military university until now, uh, says, my captain kept growing thinner and more serious. And although he was very cheery whenever he achieved a victory, he began to get depressed at times. And despite this, he said, no bullet will ever hit me. So he still thought that he was more or less invincible up there. But he was definitely getting, you know, feeling the strain of it. And as the war continued into October, he continues to mount up kills. By October 27th, he has 40 kills now. 40. The German Air Force was 45 planes at the start of the war. And now Oswald Bolka himself has 40 kills. But on October 27th, an exhausted Bolka, as they say, he stares into the fire at the end of a long day, uh, and everyone else is kind of partying in the mess. Um, but uh, he goes to bed kind of early. Everyone's saying, oh, I don't know if he's really feeling that well. Um, and the next day, excuse me, on October 28th, on his sixth sortie of that day, he attacks a pair of British biplanes from the 24th RFC. So they're attacking these British planes with his Stoffel behind him. Von Richthofen attacks one. Bolka attacks the other. But what he doesn't realize is Erwin Baum is also attacking the same plane. And so now, rather than these one-on-one duels, you have sort of what we call a furball. A bunch of airplanes at once. Uh, and the Englishman that was attacked by Richthofen flies in front of both Baum and Bolka, who jerk their planes out of the way. But Baum's undercarriage rips through the top of Bolka's left wing. Bolka is able to make, by all accounts, a miraculous landing. However, it wasn't enough. He's thrown forward during the landing. He hits his head, fractures his skull, and he's killed. They suspect that if he had just been wearing a helmet, that he would have survived. But he never wanted to wear his helmet, and he never wanted to strap himself in. So this is the downside of never... or being a bit disdainful for the rules and he's killed um bomb learning that his collision had killed his best friend had to be restrained from killing himself and the sad irony here is bulka was correct when he said that he no enemy bullet would ever find him and he was also correct in his dicta that two fighters should never attack the same opponent yeah, and you got to imagine how difficult this would be at this time. They didn't have radios to talk to each other to parse out who was going to go after each opponent. They had to just kind of know what the plan was and watch each other and deconflict that way. Nowadays, we have uh, what's called engaged and support com, and that is basically communication contracts uh, between a flight lead and a wingman to help determine who is going to be trying to go in for the kill and who is going to be separating themselves from the fight uh, and putting them, themselves into a position to back their flight lead up or back the other aircraft up. Yeah, you would think in a lot of ways that a 2v1 is easier than a 1v1. 
And in some ways it is, but in some ways it does take a whole lot more coordination between the two fighters because there's always a real world threat that you're going to crash into each other. Nowadays, you're, you're all going hundreds of miles an hour and you're both trying to attack one person. It can be very easily get channelized attention if you're, if there's not one person who's dedicated to making sure that they're staying clear of the other. And so that's why the wingman uh, concept, the wingman is always making sure that there's good deconfliction unless he's the one attacking and then the flight lead has to deconflict from the wingman. And that's why we have that engaged support com. And this rule, like many others in aviation, is written in blood. And this happens to be the blood of Oswald Polka. And lastly, just to put a bow on this entire episode here and to, to put a bow on everything we've talked about with Oswald Bolka, there's one major claim I'd like to make before we sign off. And that is, we talked earlier about the Pareto principle, the law of the vital few, the 80-20 rule, whatever you want to call it, how some people have a disproportionate impact and how Oswald Bolka had a disproportionate impact above the skies of Verdun and on the German Air Force. And I think you can make a case that Oswald Bolka is the most influential pilot of World War I. Uh, he's the guy who came up with the brief, came up with the debrief essentially, came up with the first rules of combat. He was the first major ace, and he was the mentor to the Red Baron. So much of the Red Baron's success he owes to Oswald Bolka, and he even says that himself. So I do think that Oswald Bolka, he may not be the most um, accomplished in terms of kills. He may not have been the best flyer. I don't know who the best flyer was, but I think he was probably the most influential pilot of World War One. Yeah, and a lot of that is the it's the debrief, it's the brief, uh, it's the way he was a leader as well as a great pilot. Um yeah, I don't know who's going to challenge you on that. Yeah, and as far as the brief, the debrief, and those rules he made up, that's what we're going to cover in our next episode on Fight History. Fight History is hosted by Brian Burke and Mark Silvers. Written by Brian Burke and produced by Mark Silvers. Music by Cody Martin. Check out our blog at www.fighthistory.com. <laughs>